you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. As Mr. Al shared earlier, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, and this morning our text is verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. The title of the sermon, as you'll see in your outline there provided in the worship folder, is called to stand out. And as we consider this text this morning, I want us to consider what it means for the believer to carry out or to live out the Beatitudes that we've been looking at in verses 1 through 12 as we've been walking through Matthew chapter 5. But before we read the text, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would teach us the truth of your word. We ask, Father, that as our hearts and minds are laid bare before you, and as they are open, we are transparent before you that you would speak to us. We pray, Holy Father, that our lives would reflect the very hope that Christ spoke to the disciples when he taught them in the Sermon on the Mount. Father, would you conform our lives to the truth of your word? Would you conform and transform our minds to the truth of your word and by your Holy Spirit lead us to apply your word? Would you fill our hearts and our minds this morning with an application of your word so that we know how to live it out and carry it out in our daily lives? Father, it's my prayer that you would anoint our ears to hear and my lips to speak. And that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I was thinking about the challenge of this text that's before us this morning, I began thinking about how in the world, what, what in the world would be a good opening illustration? So whether this is a good opening illustration, I don't know. I probably ruined it already. Uh, there's, uh, there's this interesting uh, critter, it's called a reptile. So if any of you are a herpetologist and you have a background in studying reptiles or amphibians, uh, you probably know everything I'm going to say, but most of you probably aren't, so here we go. Uh, a chameleon uh, is an interesting animal, uh, or an interesting reptile, rather. It's of the lizard family. But some of the facts that you might not know is uh, they, uh, there are 160 different species or kinds of uh, kinds of chameleons and a chameleon uh, can stick out its tongue to catch its prey two times the length of its body and it can deliver that tongue in a matter of 0.07 seconds to catch its prey so as soon as I mean it's open it's there and back before uh, before you even realize it right so I mean that's quick but you know what's the most interesting fact about chameleons the most interesting fact about chameleons is that they can change their skin pattern and their color to blend in to the environment that they're in. It's, it's amazing. This is the most amazing camouflage that God has created for any creature on this earth. It is incredible how a chameleon can do this. It can, it can just blend in. They're experts at blending into their environment. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus challenges his followers in the exact opposite way. 
Rather than blending in to the culture and the surrounding society, Jesus tells his disciples and us that we are to live, live distinctly from the world. We are to be distinct. And to do this, he uses two metaphors by which he clarifies the church's mission and how we are, in fact, to live distinct from the world. And so this morning, what I want us to see is, as believers, our mission in the world is to live in such a way that our lives resemble and reflect the glory of God. As believers, our mission in the world is to live in such a way that our lives resemble and reflect the glory of God. And so we've said that the Beatitudes are not requirements for kingdom entrance, but they're realities for kingdom living. And so we must realize that the Beatitudes cannot be lived out in isolation. These powerful, transforming characteristics affect every aspect and every relationship within the believer's life. And so beginning in verse 13, Jesus clarifies the church's mission in a fallen world. And he clarifies how these Beatitudes actually flesh out in practical everyday living. So follow along in verse 13 as I read through verse 16. Jesus says, "You are the light of the light you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden." Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Really, there are two points this morning to the sermon, and it is to see these two metaphors and how they play out in the life of a believer. And the first one is simply the salt of the earth. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt in biblical times had several functions. But two this morning that I want to focus on uh, that were the most prominent uh, uses of salt in the day... And one of them is really common to us today. It's, the, it's flavor. Salt was used to flavor food, right? It, it adds a zest to food. We're familiar with that. We know that when we have eggs in the morning, we grab the salt immediately, right? And we start putting salt on them if you like salt. If you don't, you don't do that. But this wasn't really the most prominent use of salt. The most prominent use of salt was preservation of meat. So without salt, meat would quickly grow rancid. So they would use salt to cure the meat. In fact, they would do that in much the same way that they use salt today, for those of you who like sushi, to cure the sushi before you eat it. It protects the meat from growing bacteria. And so rubbing salt into the meat or or soaking, uh, soaking meat in a saline solution extended the shelf life of the meat for several days. And you can imagine that this would be much needed in a time when there was no refrigeration to keep things cold. And so Jesus says, get the picture here, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. What's he saying? He's saying to the disciples, first and foremost, you are a preservative. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You're not to live a life then withdrawn from the culture, 
But here's the scope of your mission. You are the salt of what? Of the earth. The scope of your mission is to be engaged in the midst of the earth as you walk, as you live day to day, as you play, as you work, as you retreat, as you vacation, as you do all of these things, you are the salt of the earth. So we need to understand from a biblical perspective the reason we would need to be salt in the earth. The reason Jesus says his disciples and the church today is to be salt in the earth is because the world is in a state of moral decay. Scripture teaches that evil is present and active in the world and that the world is actually filled with darkness. And here's the problem. The problem is that when sin entered God's good creation through man's rebellion, it festered and it grew. And in response to man's rebellion and evil, Genesis 6, 5 tells us the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God wiped out all but eight people through the flood. And still the corruption of sin in man proved even too powerful for Noah, the preacher of righteousness. And so Noah's first action upon exiting the ark was to offer an atoning sacrifice for he and his family. And yet he continued in sin. So Genesis 8.21 says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. But Noah's story teaches us something about man's condition, doesn't it? Noah's story teaches us the deep-seated evil in the heart of humanity. And that it didn't change after God rendered judgment upon the world. God destroyed all flesh except for Noah and his family. But here's what happened. The judgment that God issued on the world and against sin in this way. It did not really deal redemptively with the sin of man's heart. And so there's another means by which God patiently and lovingly deals with the sin of man's heart. And that means is through preserving humanity. That means is it's through Jesus Christ who became the atoning sacrifice for God's people so that everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. And so what happened is Jesus substituted himself in humanity's place and he satisfied God's wrath against sin. This was his judgment against our sin. But instead of pouring the judgment out upon those who believe, he poured it out upon Christ. And so Christ died so that we might live. He sent the Holy Spirit to equip the church then for carrying out his mission in the world. His mission in the world is reconciliation between man and God. And so here's the point. Believers fulfill Christ's ministry of reconciliation through preservation. Through preservation. So as ministers of reconciliation... Salty Christians preserve the perishing world from moral decay. Think about that. Think about your responsibility, believer. 
He doesn't say you're like the salt of the earth. Instead, he says you are the salt of the earth. Very emphatically, Jesus is calling his followers to live distinctly from the world. And we do this as we reprove evil. We, we preserve through reproving evil. As a salt of the earth, believers are the preservative of humanity. This is what Jesus is saying. The Christian's life ought to make a difference in the place where he or she is. Whether that's in our vocations, walking around in the office, having conversations, whether it's in the home or in our community, being involved in, a, uh, in the neighborhood association, whether it's, whether it's in school for our youth or whether it's in our homes. Believers ought to live distinctly different from the world. And the point of what Christ is really getting at is this. Without Christ, humanity is, is a decomposing corpse. So the church as salt actually becomes the preserving agent in God's creation for the human race, for mankind. But as you can imagine, as Jesus has already declared, this isn't always favorably received. And it doesn't always elicit a favorable response. So when salt is rubbed into a cut, it burns, doesn't it? And depending on how deep the cut is and how much salt gets in it, it really burns, can even prompt a violent reaction. So it will be when the salty lives of believers are rubbed into the world. Make no mistake, Jesus is calling us as salty Christians to be rubbed into the world. So when the saltiness of righteousness is rubbed into the circumstances of our day, it's going to make a difference. It will make ungodly and worldly conversation seem inappropriate in the middle of the plan. It won't joke about the secret office affair around the coffee pot. It won't be part of tearing others down to place oneself in a more favorable position so that one one can rise to the top. Instead, the believer's presence is a preserving influence for good. You see, when believers are absent, depravity abounds. But when believers are present, holiness is in the midst of those whom we are present with. And so believers preserve. Teachers in the midst of the classroom, they preserve with their presence, with the presence of righteousness and holiness. Social workers, as they go into homes, they preserve with the presence and the peace of Christ. You see, engineers, as they design a job, they're not stealing from the company by being lazy. They're actually working for the good of the company. They're preserving as they engage. So on and so forth. We could go down the line from plant workers to stay-at-home moms to students in the classroom. And so we also refine, refine for good. We refine for good. We don't just reproach evil, we refine for good. The salted believer's life actually ends up then bringing out the best in people. We draw others to God through our walks of joy. And our walks of joy actually become effectual for those around us. 
This is the result of the command to rejoice and be glad, right? Even in the midst of persecution, even when the saltiness of your life, as it's rubbed onto the world, produces persecution for you, Jesus even has already said, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is what happens, church, when we stand out. When we live as salt in the midst of the world. Salt is a preservative. It does refine for good. Unfortunately, though, many Christians don't walk in joy. And they actually end up having the opposite effect on people around them. Believer, realize this. Realize that your countenance either commends God to others or it disparages God to others. So think about the way that you give testimony to who Christ is in your life and what he has done. But not only is salt a preservative, it's also a flavor. It flavors. And as ministers of reconciliation, salty Christians flavor the tasteless world with the richness of righteousness. I want you to see that. Around our house, we we like salt on our food. I, I alluded to it a moment ago. I like salt on just about everything. In fact, if I have watermelon, I put salt on it. If I have cantaloupe, I put salt on it. If I have tomatoes, I put salt on it. Cucumbers, put salt on it. But the one thing I really like to put salt on is steak. Man, steak is so good with a little bit of salt on it. And it's the flavor. It just it brings out. Salt just enhances it. It brings out the flavor. It's like, it's like a party on my palate whenever I taste it. If I wouldn't have become a preacher, I wanted to become a food critic. So as, as I eat a, a steak, it, it transforms this bland plate of food into a rich, wonderful, delightful meal. In much the same way, salty Christians bring out the beautiful taste of holiness in the world. Believe it, this is your life. This is your reality. This is what God is calling you to do, believer. Wherever you have been planted in place, God is calling you by your life to bring out this rich, beautiful taste of God's kingdom in the midst of the world. You see, the kingdom realities of the Beatitudes, when lived out in believers' lives, make this salt flavorful and wonderful, and it will draw people to God. This is, this is the role and the responsibility of the church. And here's the thing. Christian righteousness is the missing flavor the world needs but doesn't realize it needs. There's a warning in the text, though, here in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In one sense... Jesus isn't giving us a chemistry lesson here, but salt can't lose its taste. Salt is a compound that's very stable, so it can't lose its taste. But what Jesus is highlighting here, it's the word, but if salt loses its taste, it's the word for foolish. If salt becomes foolish, translation, if it becomes defiled, if it's unable, if it's unable to bring that added flavor, it becomes useless. And the point is, it's unnatural for salt to lose its saltiness. It's inconceivable that a thing would behave contrary to its intrinsic nature. One commentator said, 
Salt that loses its saltiness would be like water that ceases to be wet or like fire that ceases to be hot. Or as we see in a moment, like a light bulb or like light that ceases to give light. In other words, it's useless. At the very least, Jesus is saying a foolish disciple has no influence on the world. And so to the Christian, we would say we are called to be new creations in Christ. As Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that we're actually a new humanity, that we're made alive, we're brought from death to life. And so if one's life isn't salty, the question is, how can one be certain of his or her salvation? So to those who are disciples of Christ, here's the challenge of the text. Live salty lives. Are we salty in this way? Do we slow down sin and corruption around us? Do we make life tasty for others? Do we give flavor and zest in the midst of conversations? Do we add spiritual and holy zest to life? Are others' lives spiritually better because they simply know us? We are to give salt. We are to be salt the salt of the earth, salt in the midst of conversation, salt in our daily interaction. Are you living a salty life, believer? Maybe it's a strange question, but think about it. Are you being used by God to preserve others? To share the hope of the gospel? Secondly, this morning, not only are we called the salt of the earth, we are also called the light of the world. We see this in verses 14 through 16 where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine. Let it shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, as lights of the world... We need to understand the background of what Jesus is referring to. It's what Mr. Al spoke about earlier when he read from Isaiah chapter 60. In the Old Testament, Israel was depicted as God's light for the nations. In Isaiah 49, 6, Isaiah says, I will make you from God. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then... Isaiah 60, verse 3, And the nations shall, shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Israel was to be a light to the nations. Yet their failure as a covenant people to be God's light to the nations, it points us to the true Israel, Jesus. Jesus is the one who came making a new covenant through his blood and became the light to the nation so that Jesus would say in John 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, follow me and I show you the way to the Father. You'll have the light of life, not the darkness of death. And in John 9, 5, Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so he emphatically stresses here. This is really an undeniable reality for true believers, almost incomprehensible. So Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But then he takes that truth statement 
And look at what he says for the believer in verse 14. It's parallel to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. He says, you are the light of the world. Jesus said in John 9, 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But now that he's left the world, Jesus is saying here, for, for the believer, you are the light of the world. The description of Jesus as light now becomes a description of believers. Christ left his light in the world. And guess what his light in the world is? It is the church. It's believers. You and I together, we are the light of Christ in the world. Well, what are the implications for that? Here are the implications. First, our identity. Our identity as image bearers of Christ. Christians are light dispelling spiritual darkness in the world. This is our identity. Church, this is who we are. Believer, this is who you are. You are the light of Christ in the midst of the world. So as image bearers of Christ, Christians are light dispelling spiritual darkness in the world. In other words, we illumine the spiritual darkness. And we do this as we reflect the light of Christ to the world. Just as the lesser light of the moon reflects the greater light of the sun, so believers, in one sense, are reflecting the glory of God in the world through our lives. As we grow in Christ, our light shines and scatters the darkness. But not only do we reflect the light of Christ to the world, we also just we, we refract the light of Christ to the world, right? Like a prism, like the light coming in one beam and then it shines out in the midst of the world. This is what this is the point. This was the point of Paul that he made when he spoke about the mystery of the church in Ephesians all throughout the book of Ephesians, but particularly in Ephesians chapter five, verse eight and verse 11. In verse eight, he says, for at one time you were darkness, right? Church, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then he says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, the light of believers, the church, is this multifaceted light. And it shines through the believer's life in many ways into the world, through our vocations, through our relationships, through the community that we live in, through the actions that we take, through the words that we speak. In all ways, everything about us, our lives are shining light in the midst of the world. So when we think about our identity, that we are light in Christ, we are the light of the world. Think about our responsibility as believers, that we are shining for the name and for the sake of Christ, revealing the glory of God in the midst of creation. And God uses us in this way. And so we don't just, in one sense, we reflect the greater light, the glory of God. But in another sense, understand that we are the light of Christ in the midst of the world. Believer, you are the light of Christ. And this speaks really to our mission. In our mission, as image bearers of Christ, Christians shine the light of the gospel. Or shine the light through good works for God's glory. Christians shine the gospel light through good works for God's glory. Look at how he describes this in verses 15 and 16. He says, well, at the end of 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do a people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In other words, he's saying you are to be visible like a city on a hill. A city isn't put on a hill or on a mountaintop so that it might be hidden, is it? No, it's put up there, and especially at night, there's this light coming from the city, and you can see it from all around. So what Jesus is saying is there's a purpose that the city is put on a hill. In the same way, there's a purpose that a lamp inside a house is lit. It's not lit to put a bowl over it. It's lit so that it shines, so that it stands out, so that it gives light to all who are in the house. What's Jesus saying? He's saying to the church, to disciples, don't live a secret life. Be visible. Be visible to the world. Be visible to those that you've been placed around, who've been placed around you. Let me ask you a question. If people in your sphere of influence found out that you were a Christian, would they be surprised? If they found out that you were committed to following Christ and walking with Christ, would they be surprised? Do they know yet? Do they know that you're a believer? Do they know that you assemble with with a a, a community of faith, with with other believers and worship God? Do you live in such a way as to stand out so that you are the salt and the light? You see, to be salt and light, then, it's a call to righteous living. It's a call where we as believers live our life outwardly, visibly, so that others see Christ and are drawn to Christ. In a similar way that Jesus promised light to shine in the midst of darkness so that they would have hope and joy, deliverance and salvation. Disciples of Christ now, we we as disciples of Christ image Christ to the world as light. And we bring the good news of hope and joy and deliverance and salvation. And the point that Jesus is making is we can't follow him in secret. The call to discipleship then is a visible called it's a visible life so what's holding what's holding us back church from being visible to the world are we seeking to walk as light in the midst of darkness do we realize this is our identity there's not a question do you want to be light today you are light is what jesus is saying we can't follow christ in secret You see, those who would want to put a basket over the light are like the ones who would like to be the part-time Christian. Seeks to shine light sometimes and then be in darkness other times. Are you claiming to walk in the light yet at the same time wanting to walk in darkness? I wonder how many Christians are trying to walk in the light and yet hide their light at the same time. What Jesus is saying here is don't light the lamp and put the basket over it. Let the light shine in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our community, in the midst of our vocation. Let the light of Christ shine. The challenge that he leaves us with in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. Jesus says the good works that we do will point to the glory of God. 
It's not to be confused with what he says in, in chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Well, here Jesus is commanding us. He's saying in the same way, let your light shine. It's a command. Let the light of Christ in you shine. How do we do this? Well, we do it through good works. Good works aren't the light. Believer, you are the light. The disciple of Christ is the light. But the light shines through the good works that we do. We don't do good works so that they might be seen by others, so that we flash our righteousness before others. We do good works from where? From, from within. It's from a heart that desires to please and to serve God. And so the good deeds are not the light, but the disciples are. And so the disciple has the source of light in Christ, and this light shines through our works for the glory of God. Cross point, are we known as salt and light in Baton Rouge? Believer, are you known as salt and light in the places that you frequent? Are we known as as ones who influence, as a church who influences our city for righteousness sake? What's our reputation in the broader society? Believer, what is, what's hindering your mission from being the salt and the light? What's hindering our mission from as the church? And then maybe this is an introspective question for you to consider this morning. Beneath our failings and stumblings, what do we really desire? Deep down, do we really desire to be salt and light? Do we really hunger and thirst for righteousness? How about the time that we spend in prayer? Does that point to an internal yearning and desire for more of God and less of our own way? Or how about the time that we spend in study of God's word? Do we find ourselves drawing nearer to God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Church, are we known as being salt and light in the city, in this community, in our communities? I pray that we are. This morning, maybe you want to spend some time in prayer considering how God is calling you to be salt and light. What are the practical and specific ways that you are to be salt and light in the midst of your circle of influence, in the midst of the community? Maybe there are particular ways that God is leading you to engage in good works for his glory, for his kingdom's sake. I pray that you'll respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Let us pray. Our Father, I pray that you would take the truth of your word. And Lord, that you would seal it in our hearts. And Father, that you would work in our midst as a body of believers that we would be the salt and the light. And Father, I pray that we would bring you glory in all that we do and that you would use our lives to reach others with the hope of the gospel, to dispel the darkness, to preserve humanity, to speak hope and life and truth of the gospel into difficult circumstances. God, may we be a people who are yielded for your namesake, for your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?